Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have on Alex, who is the co-founder of IDEX, Decentralized Exchange. For those who follow along with the podcast, we had Alex on for a deep dive previously, but thought it was opportunistic to bring back on to discuss two important things that the team is working on and actually rolled out today um, as of recording, which is IDEX 2.0, which is their next-gen decentralized exchange and also the work they've been doing on optimized, optimistic rollups. Alex, how's it going? Hey, doing well. Thank you, Tom. Great to be so back. Alex, yeah, of course. So Alex, just so we don't lose the listeners, could you give a brief intro on kind of IDEX goals, what you guys are all about? Certainly. Uh, IDEX, we've been on an evolution of trying to understand the best way to build a highly performant yet safe and secure decentralized exchange. So I think on the last conversation, we talked a whole bunch about the different trade-offs and design considerations that go into building a decentralized exchange. You know, the unifying factor being that it's non-custodial. No one can control your funds except for the end user. But then a lot of questions about where does the exchange live, so to speak? Is it on the blockchain? Is it off-chain? Kind of these hybrid models. Um, Our approach and our, our goal is to build what is effectively a centralized exchange experience. It's fast. It's performant. It's got a highly scalable design, but with the decentralized fund security and flexible custody model that comes with decentralized exchanges. The end goal being that an end user with a ledger could trade against Uh, professional traders who use BitGo as a qualified custodian, and everyone's able to integrate seamlessly into this one platform. So I'm looking at comingsoon.idex.io, and it's kind of the landing page for your new IDEX 2.0. I guess, what are the main changes at IDEX 2.0 versus what you guys had in the past? There's two main uh, buckets of changes. The first is around the UI UX itself. So the current version, IDEX 1.0, was designed in 2016. There's been a lot of development on exchange UI uh, in general, uh, both decentralized and centralized. Uh, but we've also learned a lot in the last two plus years of operations around how customers interact with the exchange and in particular with private keys. Uh, to give a concrete example, when you sign a transaction with MetaMask or Ledger, there's a delay in the pop-up uh, uh, or availability of being able to sign that. So that's something we have to take into consideration when we're designing the UX of the exchange platform, because that's something that doesn't exist on centralized exchanges. So that's the first big change users will notice is that it just feels uh, a lot slicker, a lot more performant than the previous version of IDEX. The second change is kind of behind the scenes, and it has to do with the way that we are settling transactions to the network. In the first version of IDEX, each trade was sent one at a time to the network for settlement. The issue there being that it drove up transaction costs, and it ultimately wasn't scalable long term. 
So a couple fun stats. In 2018, IDEX users paid almost $5 million in gas fees to the Ethereum network to settle all of their transactions. And at peak times, the IDEX contract took up almost 20% of the Ethereum network's capacity. So the second key change is to improve the efficiency of the settlement process. Rather than sending them one at a time, we batch transactions together in what's known as a roll-up and settle all these transactions in one single on-chain settlement. So you actually break the relationship, the linear relationship between number of trades and gas costs and start to get the throughput and scalability of a centralized exchange. Yeah, that's huge. And I'm excited to dive into optimistic rollups a bit later on. But I mean, just so that people are aware, I mean, you guys are the largest DEX. And I mean, there's a lot, you know, you guys have a lot of competition now, right? I mean, 0x is launching or actually already launched V3. We've kind of a deep dive there. And there's a lot of changes that they made. And then you also have Kyber and Bancor and, and you know, others. Have you guys been able to maintain your lead here? And do you think that V2 will help you kind of really push ahead? So it's great to see the rise of all the other DEXs as well, right? We are very much a proponent of the ecosystem growing. So we're really excited by the DeFi use cases that are expanding. Um, you know, one of the things that we're really focused on that's maybe a bit different from some of the other exchanges is we really think that it's key to have a high-performant centralized order book. Uh, this is a little different than something like Uniswap, which provides liquidity via an on-chain, essentially an on-chain market-making algorithm. So that makes it easier for other applications to integrate, uh, but it makes it harder for market makers, for example, to trade and use the same algorithmic strategies that they use on centralized exchanges. So it's great to see growth in all of these areas, but there's definitely some key differences in terms of what people are optimizing for and how that impacts the product strategy. Gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, I'm on your demo now just using it. I mean, the new exchange, the new V2 just looks and feels very simple, easy to use. I mean, which is great. And my last question kind of leading into your competitors, I mean, Uniswap has had some pretty significant growth to date. I mean, do you think that you guys are competing with them or do you think that they're serving a different market? I'm just trying to cue into the differences or if you think that you guys can coexist. Uh, we actually think that there's a bit of a different market at play here, right? So if you look at the growth of something like Uniswap, it's driven a lot by applications building on top of it, uh, kind of the composability of DeFi, which is really interesting because then you can have this liquidity pool that's serving other different applications. It's serving as kind of the, the back end or an infrastructure piece of other applications. Um, however, when you look at overall exchange volume, it's still overwhelmingly held in centralized exchanges. And when we talk to the big players in the space, the big traders, the market makers, it's because the UX and the liquidity is just not there on decentralized exchange design to allow them to employ their market making and algorithmic trading strategies. So we think that this is kind of a unique opportunity to tackle those markets, to bring the UX and design that they need, but with the flexible custody and security that is not available today. Um, so you know, one comment on that, when we talk to some of the prop trading firms, they actually have in their models a factor that accounts for the idea that some of their funds may just disappear uh, if some of these exchange get, get, exchanges get hacked. So it's a risk that they're aware of and, and one they're comfortable with, but it requires limiting the assets that are on any one platform, uh, consistently rebalancing across different, different venues, and it's a bit of an operational headache that we're hoping to address. 
No, for sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. And last question kind of on your competitors here. I mean, Zero X is launching V3. We did a, a big deep dive on that one recently. And I mean, there's a lot of changes that they're making. You know, a few of them are aggregating liquidity from on-chain sources like Uniswap and Oasis and Kyber. And then also kind of rolling out Zero X Mesh and in trying to improve Zero X Instant. I mean, what's your take on them? Do you think that as they roll out these key features, they're going to be a larger competitor for you guys? Or do you think that you guys are still going to pull ahead? Uh, for it, it, It's TBD at the moment. Um, one thing, I guess maybe an interesting comment on 0x, uh, they're trying to, at least as far as I can tell, they're trying to keep some of the open composability of something like Uniswap while also building off-chain components that allow for the coordination of trades and activity between users in the network uh, that is core to our design philosophy, right? The idea that you really want a high-performant off-chain matching engine to make sure users don't collide with each other on-chain. Um, but they're trying to keep that stuff decentralized, which I think, in our opinion, may put put them in the middle of these two different markets. Um, you know, trying to serve both and keep both features, but not being able to do either as well as an exchange that focuses specifically on one or the other. That makes sense. So diving into the goods here, you guys released optimized optimistic rollups. And I had on Vitalik recently and Danny Ryan, and we kind of discussed how Ethereum is going about optimistic rollups, which seem to really have garnered a lot of attention over the past couple of weeks and months very quickly. You guys are taking a different approach to it. So I guess it makes sense if you could kind of describe or rehash what exactly optimistic rollups are, and then we could kind of get into how you guys are differentiating your version of it. Absolutely. And I think we can also include zero knowledge roll up in the discussion because fundamentally they all, all these designs use a, a similar high level architecture. And it really relies around this concept of a Merkle root, Merkle tree structure. Um, so if you think about what is costly of sending transactions to the Ethereum network, it's kind of two pieces. It's submitting all of the data that tells the network what to do with a transaction. And then it's actually performing that transaction and updating the state or the user's balances on chain. So all of the roll-up designs work by bringing state, application state, in the case of a decentralized exchange, this would be who owns what tokens, bringing that information off-chain into a layer two ledger, executing changes to the layer two ledger off-chain, and then submitting a summary of those changes via a Merkle root. Um, if, if you're unfamiliar with the Merkle root, if the listeners haven't dug into this, you can think of it as a way of briefly summarizing all of the information in a data set by hashing it together until you get one single fixed length output. If you change any of the underlying data elements, you'll get an entirely different hash, what's known as the Merkle root. Um, so all of this activity is performed off-chain, and then you submit the Merkle root to the network as proof of everything that happened in this period of time. That makes a lot of sense. So basically, you guys are taking as much as you can off-chain you're hashing that, submitting it as a Merkle root on-chain, and you get a lot of scale from that because Ethereum doesn't have to process everything on-chain. You could process a lot of this off-chain. I guess the dumb question for you, and I'm sure other people have answered it, is how do you ensure that what happens off-chain is not messed around with and is kept secure? 
Exactly right. So that is the big question. And that's really where these designs differ in their proposals. Because as you said, you've, you've essentially destroyed data. It's no longer available for layer one to process and inspect. So now you have to prove, quote unquote, to the network that the Merkle root summary is, in fact, only can includes legitimate transactions. And this is where the three different design proposals that have, have, we've kind of seen, this is where they diverge. And I thought it'd be interesting to take a few minutes to jump into each at a high level. Um, so the first one people have probably heard of is zero-knowledge proofs. These use the idea of Starks or Snarks to take all of that off-chain data and turn it into a proof, which is then checked by a smart contract on the network. Um, one of the big challenges here is that the proof, the output of all of the off-chain data, continues to grow as the number of transactions increases. So even if you, um, you know, use this method of kind of condensing the on-chain data submission, you're still going to run into scaling limitations. So, And that's one of the things that we see when people tout the transactions per second associated with their design. It's often assuming a, an extremely optimal environment. Um, you know, something where they're taking up the entirety of the Ethereum blockchain uh, and, and something that we don't think is really realistic. Um, also, you know, what happens when a few popular services start to compete against each other using some of these solutions? Um, Alex, the, the point, though, I mean, when you said that the proof grows as transaction count grows, is that like all of like, let's say you guys are using uh, ZK rollups. Is that every transaction ever, or is that just the transactions in a specific batch? That's a good question. So the idea is that submitting a batch of 20 transactions is more expensive than submitting a batch of 10 transactions. So you get some economies of scale adding on new transactions. Uh, it's not quite linear, but the ultimate result is that there is a cap on the number of transactions that you can submit in any single block. Got it. Okay. So it doesn't have to, ZK rollups don't have to share the whole state of the network, but the point is that as you put more and more into them, it just becomes too costly and probably slow. Yeah, that's that's right. There's a limit on the throughput. And now one of the things that's really cool about zero knowledge rollups is that they're using a, a concept known as validity proofs. So the zero knowledge proof is quote unquote, proving to the network that all of the data in that proof is correct. Everything that happened off chain was legitimate. So if the network accepts that proof, then you can actually know that everything in the Merkle root was correct. Uh, the big challenges we see being that it continues to grow with the number of transactions. Also, it's, it's very much based on new cryptography that has only recently left the kind of R&D phase. So we think it's really promising, but that there's a fair bit of development to go before it's something that we would feel comfortable using in our production systems. Got it. Okay, that, that makes sense for zero-knowledge uh, rollups. Let's go on to normal, or not normal, but kind of the run-of-the-mill optimistic rollups. What's the difference or key takeaways there? Absolutely. So optimistic rollup, again, the question is, how do you tell the network or let the network know that all of the information in the Merkle root is correct? In this case, the optimistic rollup design takes all of the transactions and publishes them as what's known as call data. So this information is available to the Ethereum network, but it's not used to actually make any underlying state changes. What this allows is for those that are validating the optimistic rollup Merkle root, they can actually take all of that data, process it, and make sure, one, that all of the transactions are legitimate transactions. For example, in the case of a DEX, that there isn't a trade in there that a user didn't actually agree to or that 
uses a balance that doesn't actually exist for that user. Um, and then two, that all of those transactions that are seen is what's included in the Merkle root, right? Remember, you, the Merkle root is a hash of all of the underlying data. So the network validators now have all of that data because it was published that they can themselves hash together and confirm the output is correct. If they see any issues, they can invoke what's known as fraud proofs in order to essentially challenge the system. And one way of thinking of it is you can bring it, bring this data to the Ethereum network for review. So kind of one of the uh, you know, guiding principles is you don't go to court unless you think there's an issue. Um, in this case, you bring an issue that you think you've identified with the data. You can actually bring it to the network and show, hey, this transaction is part of this Merkle root. And I have reason to believe that something is invalid about it. And then the Ethereum network is able to decide, is that transaction legitimate or not? Got it. So in practice, though, fraud proofs and challenging seem like they could be very technical and very difficult, right? This isn't going to be some user that thinks they lost, you know, one ETH in a transaction because they were screwed over, right? It'll be monumental or very large, high value things that may have went wrong. But I guess my question for you is, is our fraud proofs or this challenge period, is this something normal developers can do? Or is this something that has a really high hurdle and like a high technical boundary to kind of explore? Yeah, so that's a great question and, and something we actually think about with our design. I actually don't know enough about the proposed validation methods for optimistic rollup. Uh, it would be something that would be programmatic, right? You're not going to have someone sitting there inspecting all of the transactions. And I would imagine there's going to be an open source implementation that allows anyone to become a validator. And then there would be uh, rewards for someone who, if your piece of software is able to identify an incorrect data uh, element, like an incorrect transaction, or if there is some inconsistency between the data itself and the resulting Merkle root. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And for those listening and linked in the show notes is kind of Alex and IDEX's roll-up rundown. And there's a clear table there that we could kind of run through, Alex, on the differences between optimistic roll-ups and optimized optimistic roll-ups. You already talked about how the Merkle root checkpoint has a fixed gas cost, but then you went into recently about how all transaction data is called sent as call data on optimistic roll-ups, but on yours, they're all published. Uh, transactions are published off-chain unless there's an issue. When is that data then published on-chain again? I may have missed that. Yeah, so great question. So just maybe a quick overview of uh, why we then felt the need to have our own approach, which we've titled Optimized Optimistic Rollup. Interestingly, quick anecdote, we've actually been working on this for a little over a year now and have seemed to coalesce around similar designs as the other rollup solutions in the use of a Merkle root to summarize data and drastically improve the scalability. Um, however, what we've noticed is that uh, the other transaction approaches, they as, as similar with zero knowledge, something like optimistic rollup, because each transaction is published as call data, you're trading off one cost for another. So it is cheaper because data itself is a cheaper resource on the network, but you still have increasing costs associated with each incremental transaction. Um, And we actually looked into operating IDEX on optimistic rollup and discovered that given the complexity of our transactions, it only led to about a 30% improvement in transaction throughput. Wow. So what's the difference in throughput from using optimistic rollups versus optimized optimistic rollups? 
Yeah. And so this is where we're really excited with what we've developed and and some of the innovations we're bringing to the table. So the high level difference is, as you correctly asserted, instead of publishing the data as call data all the time as a default, the, the data itself is in kind of steady state phase, only published off chain to an off chain ledger. Um, there is a network of stakers, the IDEX validators, that are staking the IDEX token and earning 50% of the trade fees from the network, from the IDEX exchange, as compensation for doing this work. And their job is to review the off-chain data and do that same function that I described that optimistic roll-up validators would do. Um, so it's the same kind of question around, is are all of these transactions legitimate? And do all of these transactions hash down to equal the Merkle root that was published by IDEX? Uh, in the event that they identify an issue, they can bring any one of those transactions to the network. And we have a discrete set of fraud proofs that actually cover any one of the particular issues that could go wrong with a decentralized exchange. For example, a user trading a balance that they don't have or a signature that's invalid, et cetera. So, Alex, it seems like most layer twos out there are creating the scalability tech for other people to build use cases on. You guys already have the use case, which is a DEX, and now you're creating your own scalability. How do you kind of view that dynamic? Like, Do you expect your tech to be used in other types of applications or like, can people copy it or is there a benefit from using your tech through you guys? I'm just trying to wonder or just reason about other applications using your tech and what your value accrual there would be from that? Yeah, so I think it's the perfect question to ask. And it it kind of is uh, indicative of how we've been approaching this and and why we decided to do our own approach. Um, So the other... The other scalability designs are understandably trying to create a general purpose solution, something that works for all applications and in all types of application environments. Um, You know, as we discussed earlier and on the previous podcast, in the case of IDEX, we actually want a centralized matching and execution engine because we think that's critical to being able to provide the trading UX that we think customers demand. Um, Because of that, we're able to make some certain trade-offs or relax certain constraints that may apply to other uh, roll-up or scaling solution developers. Um, So by starting with an application-specific kind of focus and a specific purpose in mind, we think that we're able to come up with a better design that is custom-suited to our needs. Um, And then to your question, this is something that we think we plan to expand and offer to other applications with similar design characteristics. So you could imagine something like a video game that has NFTs. Uh, Maybe customers want to trade them for one another, but don't want to incur the gas costs of doing so on layer one all the time. Uh, It still kind of relies on the economics of the video game developer, uh, but you can provide the ownership of the asset to customers on layer two. Um, So that's an example of a company that we think has a similar uh, kind of set of goals as well as then would benefit from the architectural design that we have here. Got it. And and just digging in a little here, I mean, would you guys, would your tokens or would your ecosystem accrue value if somebody used this tech within their own ecosystem? Like, I'm just trying to wonder, like, if video game assets wanted trading of assets or Brave Browser with micropayments trading those around, like, how would that benefit you guys? And, And apologies if I missed it earlier. 
Yeah. So to touch on that a little bit, the the validator network is kind of the key part the, from a crypto economic perspective that's that's keeping this together. So the validators are getting 50% of the fees from the exchange. And for that, they're incentivized to audit all of the off-chain data and raise any flags if they identify any issues. Um, so to the question of bringing in other applications, the idea would be, you know, one of the things we think about is that many new applications uh, don't necessarily have the resources or community to stand up their own validator network. The IDEX network is live today. It has over 200 nodes, staking about 50% of the circulating supply. Um, so it's a robust network that's been operation for about a year now. Um, and it's something that we plan to open up to other applications. Uh, I think the actual monetization, you can imagine a situation where some of the fees are, are accruing back to the layer two validators. Uh, but we also think of this as an opportunity to give back in some way to the community. Um, you know, it's something that we want to see flourish as a layer two resource. So it's not necessarily our primary focus at the beginning. Um, you know, we'd be really more concerned with how do we think about recruiting other applications into the network? Because the more applications you have on the same layer two, uh, the more easily you can transact between those. Makes sense. And Alex, just zooming out, two last questions for you. The, the one is a high level one. Do you have any new or revised thoughts on kind of the battle between decentralized exchanges and centralized exchanges? I mean, centralized exchanges have obviously been under the gun recently, regulatory wise, um, new laws, geofencing people, et cetera. And it seems like DEXs have begun to take off due to better UXs and composability on DeFi. Do you think that the world is going to be in a DEX world or do you still have a couple of concerns there? Uh, good, great question. Um, personally, I think it's a little too early to tell. One of the things that kind of guides our philosophy is, is we don't think that um, subversion of regulation is a long-term strategy or one that an application can rely on for continued success. Um, I think the kind of posturing from regulators is pretty clear at this point in how they view even decentralized applications or those that use smart contracts. Um, you know, I think the ultimate kind of DEX design, people have asked me, how do you make the perfect DEX? I think it starts with a Satoshi style launch uh, from an anonymous team, uh, because that is, I think, critical to, you know, being able to resist some of those regulatory pressures long term. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, I think it, it kind of informs our approach, which is that we don't think that uh, anonymity is necessarily a driving factor for a majority of some of the more professional traders in the space. We think they demand a highly performant application and are frustrated with the lack of fund security as well as the need to constantly move in and out of their custody solution. And so that's really the future we envision where it, regardless of your custody preferences, an individual with a ledger can trade against an individual who custodies with something like BitGo. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess my last question for you here is what are next steps for IDEX 2.0? And when do you think or are optimized or sorry, optimistic optimized rollups kind of in play? <clears throat> yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, we've got the demo live on Testnet. It's it's operating end to end. So users users can play around with it and go to the Rinkby Testnet and see the transactions every 10 minutes. We're dispatching a settlement Merkle route of all of the trades that happened off-chain in our layer two. Um, we've got some additional testing as well as auditing that we want to do, and we're going to open it up to a public bug bounty before going live sometime in Q1 2020. 
Um, also worth mentioning on December 16th, uh, hopefully this is out by then, but if not, you can still sign up for our trade competition. So we're going to be doing a one week long trading competition where users can test out the new design of IDEX 2.0, trade some of the top crypto markets. Uh, it's entirely free to participate. And if you win, you get the chance at a couple couple prizes worth over $100,000. That's incredible. Alex, I always enjoy talking to you and I, I'm definitely going to do more of these uh, quick updates and follow-on episodes with you and other guests because I think it's critical to keep everybody involved and updated on the biggest changes to projects. And the two you're working on are obviously massively important. So I really appreciate your time and hopping on in such short notice. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. Always a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.